0: Welcome to the NCLA podcast. I am your host, Rachel Mann, and today we have a returning guest, Colin Sill. Colin is a keynote speaker, a Forbes contributor, and the author of Thinking Like a Lawyer, and recently released a book called Tangible Equity, so be sure to check that one out. And he's also the founder of an award-winning organization called Think Law. Be sure to expand on the details of this podcast to learn more about his work and to connect with Colin, but welcome back.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: You do so much work in critical thinking. Can you share with our audience why critical thinking is an important aspect of CTE and how can CTE programs embed critical thinking into their curriculum and what's the best way to do so?
1: So um, I think it's not by accident that you look across the nation. Um, students that have a CTE experience have all this greater likelihood of finishing high school. Um, and what, what I always find really intriguing is that You've got kids that might be in this culinary arts academy or in this, you know, healthcare sort of academy, but they're not necessarily going into the back of someone's kitchen. They're not necessarily going to work at a hospital, but what actually is happening as you're doing this. And if we think about the part of this where we see the pre-mortem, right? Not the post-mortem, but the pre-mortem. Why is it that if you went through just a hardcore workforce development program to learn how to weld, but if you look at the statistics for programs like that, so often the employees don't make it a full 100 days. Why don't they make it? Here's the hint. It typically has nothing to do with their ability to weld. It's all these other things. It's how they're problem solving, how they're collaborating, how they're responding to things that are uncertain and like when we start looking at why critical thinking becomes so fundamentally important not just for cte but for lifelong success no matter what our young people are deciding to do with their lives then it has to be a priority has to be a priority so um i could push it back on you for a second rachel like in the last two years have you had to unlearn anything?
0: I would say, and this is not related to CTE, there have been bad habits within my tennis game that I've had to correct and unlearn. Have
1: you had to relearn anything? I ask these questions with a real kind of purpose, right? Have you had to unlearn? Have you had to relearn? Or have you had to lean on this skill set that you might have intuitively as a lifelong learner where you learn how to learn? And I think that, like, I had to unlearn something that was really, really, really important. I had to unlearn this idea that um you know when you could be in person with with a group of educators in person with a group of students that somehow this is always the superior learning model. It took a lot of evidence to actually convince me that, well, you actually can have people being able to engage in the comfort of their spaces, being able to pull a lot of different resources, being able to collaborate with multiple groups at a time rather than just being stuck at that one table for a whole day, being able to actually submit the kind of things that allow for feedback across a whole set of a room. I'm at the point where I unlearned a lot of my assumptions that understated all those different things. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that if we're looking at our role in the CTE field, if I think about my my job as, as, as an educator in a CTE discipline, I'm realizing that it's so much bigger than the discipline itself. It's so much bigger than this. And if I could start thinking about all the different ways that we can really think through what our kids need to be able to handle in life. And in my second book, Tangible Equity, I talk a lot about finding the funk finding the funk because you know let's say we look at this problem in uh plumbing okay we're looking at a plumbing situation and the same way it could be looking at an algebra situation right where it's like okay there's these two different ways that this pipe can be set up okay but in this particular instance this pipe is set up incorrectly that's scenario a and scenario b the pipe is also set up incorrectly which wrong is more right? It's like having two different equations that are both incorrect. But which wrong is more right? is having three paragraphs where one paragraph has not that great grammar, one paragraph has not that great organization. The third one is technically perfect, but didn't actually answer the question. Which one should get a higher score on your writing rubric? So when I think about your opportunity to really make critical thinking tangible, I think about how we can introduce mistakes on purpose, with a purpose, so that people that are students and learning these things can
0: go from the what
1: and the how to, to the why and the what if.
0: Now, speaking of CTE, what role did CTE play in your education? And with that, as an entrepreneur and as a small business owner, what advice would you give to students and teachers about the value of CTE as part of a broader education?
1: So, such an interesting question because at the time that i was in high school cte programs weren't having this sort of rebirth that we've seen in the last 15 to 20 years the time that i was in high school um a lot of times in new york city there's hundreds of high schools you know anything with cte kind of got the label of like a vocational school and vocational was for those that weren't on a college track and the shift started to happen where you see some of the most, you know, high achieving learners being super psyched and super thrilled about going and being a part of these CTE programs where some of them are earning all kinds of certifications, associate degrees and um, whether they choose to do that field or not. for me, um, I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is a specialized high school in New York City that you have to test in to get to. And I thought it was interesting that as a part of their baseline expectation for everyone. We had classes like the principles of science and engineering. We had classes like uh, technical drawing, where we had a little T-squares and did all these little architecture things. And um, th- there were all of these different like pathways to really kind of dig into different aspects of um, more workforce applications of what we're doing from an instructional standpoint. So my point in saying that is that, Every school has an opportunity to have CTE components. And if we were doing it right, we would have these CTE components come to be part of what we did from the time our kids are in elementary school. In elementary school, we can start thinking about what this looks like. And it goes beyond just having job chats, right? But like realizing the power that comes from actually having to have real interactions with the world. So for instance, Rachel, you talked earlier about people coming up with their own recipes for cookies or whatever, right? Um I think often about like restaurants that have menus. Why is the menu set up the way it's set up? What kinds of things do they put in the plates from a data analysis standpoint to figure out? What's gonna stay on the menu? What's not gonna be on the menu anymore? Cause nothing really hurts my feelings more than having a specific craving for a specific item at a restaurant, going there and realizing they stopped selling that thing, right? But there's a logic part of that. There's a reasoning part of that, that might involve math and probability and statistics and, you know, actual empathy, actually understanding what it is that people want, understanding like what their needs are, what needs might change over time. So my point in kind of thinking about like the the case for CTE is very similar to the case for critical thinking generally. Generally, like we're not in a space where just knowing stuff is going to be enough to be able to manage a lot of the agile, flexible, rapidly changing things that like our kids are going to have to, face, not in their future, but right now. So the sooner we can introduce some of these constructs where uncertainty becomes the norm, where learning how to learn becomes the norm, where like I'm able to really shatter this super outrageous dichotomy between what we created in traditional public education, between book smart and street smart, because it just baffles me that we can actually have something that systemically values what we call book smart where we say okay you can check all the boxes do all the compliance things and like really function in a way that's going to lead to academic success in the traditional classroom space and yet you got a lot of tools and skills here you can't apply to this real world challenge in front of you meanwhile we take kids who we pejoratively sometimes call street smart who in actuality are really good at thinking on their toes, really good at optimizing constraints, really good at like managing that funk of uncertainty. And we tell them, yeah, you can't take those skills and make them actionable and valuable in academic space. It's such a missed opportunity. And when we start thinking about CTE and critical thinking, we have opportunity to blend these two worlds together in a way that creates whole
0: children. We're
1: ready to take on this whole world.
0: That's so true, Colin. And that brings me to my next question. And this is a big one and a very important one. There was a time when CTE was viewed as being as a program for one kind of student. It was, you know, we we know that it was referred to as vocational in the past. And there was this whole mindset that still sometimes exists that there's that one kind of student for CTE and then another type of student that is college bound. And CTE has evolved over the years it, within the career and technical education Realm, we believe that CTE is for every student and it's an integral part of preparing students for their post secondary journey. However, we know that those stereotypes around CTE still exist. So, how do we address that kind of thinking? And with that, equity is and has been an issue in society and in education. And it's important that as CTE leaders and educators, that we're part of the solution and not the problem. What role do you believe that CTE plays in this? And what work do we need to do to ensure that we are part of the answer and that we're also addressing this antiquated thinking? So
1: let's just call it the way it is, right? Um, As it stands right now, we know that we don't have like a level playing field in our education system right? Like we know this. One of the things I talk about in my tangible equity book is um, the analogy, the, 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 the thing that comes up a lot where people sometimes say, hey, you know what? I am opposed to all this equity work and all these conversations about equity and justice or whatever, because I can turn on my TV and look at the NBA, the National Basketball Association, and see that like the vast majorities of players are Black. So if like race doesn't stop them from being one of the most competitive leagues on earth, then race isn't something that's going to stop them from being able to get to the next level when it comes to academic success and all that stuff. And I'm like, all right, cool. Sure. Yep. All good. Except can we actually talk about a very clear difference? The clear difference is whether you're in Arizona or Kentucky or Florida or California, like the basketball rim has the same diameter and circumference balls are inflated to the same level of pressure. A free throw line is the same distance away from the basket. A three-point line always counts for a three-pointer when you shoot from that line. And we start looking at all these things and we realize it's standardized. It's actually common, it's shared. So if everything is common and shared and standard and on the same level, it could be the case that we could therefore conclude that all else being equal, same levels of talent, effort, luck of not getting injured or whatever have you should lead to similar kinds of success if that's the time you put in. But in education, not only do we not have the same playing field that's level, we often aren't even playing the same game. So when I start to think about the opportunities that we have in our public education system to transform things for young people, I say, opportunities really matter. Opportunities really matter and so often, outcomes themselves create opportunities. So, when we look at this idea of like, okay, I'm going to have a two-tier education system where these kids over here are going to be prepared for an academic track and whatever they gets you. In. And then these other kids over here, they're going to be prepared to be workers. I say that it's not all that hard to imagine a world where that kind of divide can lead to all kinds of biases being played out based off of what type of student deserves academic opportunities, what kind of student is more appropriate for workforce opportunities. What I say is, why in the world wouldn't we want to have both? Why in the world would we not want to focus on having both? So it's funny, even in professional schools, right? Even in professional schools, like in law school, um, you know, there's a million lawyer jokes out there, but like one thing that I would hear a lot of time when I was in law school, because I actually, I taught during the day, went to law school at night, I would hear, um, you know, straight A students become judges, B students work for like judges or like law firms that are very prestigious see students become super wealthy and very successful in their career so even the idea that in law school we've got this sort of inverse relationship between academic success and success as a professional makes no sense because we keep on having this arbitrary divide so i say like the opportunity here is to go for an and to go for a space where like when i am 18 years old I have options. If I wanted to, I can go work for a career that has a pathway of growth over the future, maybe a career that might even be able to pay for my college entirely. And or I can decide to go to go to a, a four year institution with this traditional path, but I'm not going to be one of those people that graduate with my degree, no matter what it is, and feel like I have no function in society because I don't know how to actually do anything. That's kind of like the, the rub, you know, like Rachel, I'm not sure if you ever spoke about this, but do you know my undergraduate major? Do you know what I, I majored in when I was an
0: undergrad? Well, I know you taught math prior
1: to going to law school. Computer science, the Syracuse university and computer science. It was so awesome because you know, what made it awesome. I coded in languages that nobody has used in the last 30, 40 years. So it was awesome that I couldn't actually do anything for anybody with what I learned. And what was so interesting about this is yeah i'm colin seal i have a little brother whose name is also colin seal because clearly my father has issues but that aside <laughs> he had a double major in economic and statistics at florida international university his senior year he had a project looking at like traffic patterns in florida and highway safety data that required him to create some kind of code to get it going. He taught himself how to code and thought this is kind of cool. He goes to this boot camp in San Francisco for three months and really learns the ins and outs of coding. And at this point, honestly, within three months, he knows more about coding than I ever learned in four years. And today he works in cybersecurity for Robin Hood. Wow. And when I think about that divide between like academic success career success, there's this level of like, why in the world, and I I believe it's changed a lot, the computer science field has changed a lot in the last decade or so, but like, why would you prepare me for failure like this, about giving me these tools that are almost entirely academic and theoretical, when the actual problems I have to solve in the world are so much more tangible and practical? We make these false dichotomies because we just have a tough time with and in education. And we've got to be able to do and so that our kids can be complete.
0: That is such a great point. And sometimes here people talk about how we need to stop even saying college and career readiness because even college is preparing us for career readiness. So we should just be referring to career readiness. But I think that we also do need to have that reminder that there's that post-secondary piece that is critical, that you don't just stop learning when you finish high school, that you don't just stop learning when you finish your post-secondary either. That brings me to the next piece that I want to talk about, and it's so important that we move past seeing content areas as compartmentalized and start blurring the lines between subject matter. How should CTE be balanced with other aspects of a holistic education? And you mentioned holistic earlier, so I want to kind of pull that back in, such as the arts and humanities, and what kinds of connections should educators be looking to make between CTE, even the four core, and the arts?
1: So it's so funny you ask this question because um, after my first stint in teaching, um, I, I went and got my Master's in Public Administration um, from Syracuse. And I remember um, I, I had this really strong inkling, and still do, still do, to like figure out how we can make our like government organizations, our nonprofit organizations work better, work more effectively. And um, one thing that was kind of wild for our class of uh, the class of 2007 because it was this one-year program is we actually put on a musical okay it was the maxwell school we called it maxwell the musical it was like all this kind of parody sort of stuff it was hilarious it was ridiculous i was like the musical director because i played piano when i did all the arrangements for all these kind of like parody songs where it was just so much ridiculous stuff going on in this where there was these international relations students. There was the MPA student for public administration. We kind of created this sort of like West Side Story kind of beef between MPA and IR being like the Jets and the Sharks. It was so ridiculous, right? And the funny part about this is typically you don't think about people that are training to go work in government agencies as being particularly creative. At the same time, regardless of how you feel about politics, can we all agree that... The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, might have benefited to have a little bit more creativity, a little bit more of uh, an appreciation for tailoring messages to audiences in a way that audiences can appreciate and understand, right? So the things that we typically kind of relegate to the artistic fine art subcategory are really a part of what makes things work. There's a reason that some people gravitate towards Apple products because there's this sort of artistry around it. There's a reason that some people like the simplicity nature of like looking at a Gmail kind of setup where it doesn't look all that pretty, but it's so functionally purposeful and thoughtful that it's like anticipating my needs before I have them. Anticipation, thoughtfulness, artistic appreciation of the design, these are all things that are just beyond checking a box for a task being completed correctly, right? It's a deeper appreciation of these things. So I am a very artistic guy. I grew up in a performing arts, kind of like a, a community when I was in New York. And I I don't think we can separate it. I don't think we can separate it. Um, you gotta have a feel behind this stuff. And um, there's, a lot of excitement about the world of flattening it out where it's not so isolated but i want to be very real with you um our high school model and traditional high schools that master schedule it's oppressive so many things can't get done because of this master schedule so i always have to ask leaders who is really the master it's really the schedule or is it you and your team, and I don't know that we've made that shift in our high schools in particular yet, and I think you know sometimes we talk about these things of like reimagining and reinvention and all these kinds of things, and i always I always struggle with these terms because I'm always like, you know if 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 I am looking at the system we have right now. I don't even know that some super drastic transformations are what's needed. I think what's needed is a little bit of like honesty. And one of the things I talk about in this book is like having the power to kind of really speak up about stuff. You know, one of the most powerful things I've ever read um, was The Emperor's New Clothes. And I feel like in education, we play a massive game of The Emperor's New Clothes where like Everybody really deep inside knows the emperor is naked, but they're like, sure, those clothes look awesome because I don't know if we're afraid of confrontation or we're, we're so kind of compliance driven and so interested in other people's approval that we're afraid to do it. And at the end of the day, it was a young person. It was a young person that was able to call it out and say, hey, he's naked, dude. He has no clothes. He's naked. He's not some fine threads or the finest silk. No, he's naked. And I say this in the concept that you're talking about this master schedule, think about this. At a time where it is clear to everyone that our kids, like mental health, social emotional needs are are more important than ever, that their need for having caring adults who can help advise them and guide them are more important than ever. And if we also know that the ratios from counselors to students are untenable, right? Some schools is 200 to one, right? One counselor with 200 kids on a caseload. Why in the world has it become the norm? all over our nation for school counselors to manage the master schedule to manage schedule changes people that want to change their classes why what are we even doing is that why they went and got their masters in social work or in child psychology like is that why so they can change around schedules and i bring that up as one of those things that are like not something that we need to reinvent education. We don't need to smack down the whole system. We can say, hey, how about the professionals that are here on campus are here to do their jobs that they're professionally trained to do? Because that's the impact we need for them them to have. And somebody else do that, anybody else do that.
0: You know, I I remember being in eighth grade and sitting down with my counselor to plan out my schedule. She asked me what I thought I wanted to do. And I said, actually, I want to do what you do. I want to be a school counselor. And she said, no don't do it. You never counsel. You're never working with students to talk about what you think you're going to talk to them about or to help them. You uh, make schedules all day. And it never once crossed my mind to go into school counseling again after she said that, but that was her reality. That was her experience. And we see that so often that that's, that's the case, like you said. So
1: we have to acknowledge our power to change things. And I think That's part of the the magic of CTE as well, right? Like when kids are doing an activity, when kids are involved in something, when they're creating something, when they realize that like, they're not actually in a space where there's someone that's gonna give them an answer. Like I I never forget, like when I was a junior associate, uh, summer associate at, at my law firm, and I got asked to research some question about some law in some state about whether this thing could be allowable, I realized they were not asking me this as an academic exercise. They were asking because we had a client that needed to figure out what to do. So here I am at the front lines of creating a pathway to figure something out that has not been figured out before. And when I realized that I've got this power, what I've just realized was something that contradicts a lot of what we learned in school. In school, we learned a lot, and Dr. Kenny talked about this in his How to Be Antiracist book, that like knowledge is power, knowledge is power, knowledge is power. Not so. Knowledge isn't power unless you're actually using it towards the struggle for power. So if I'm actually learning to use what I know on a regular basis to solve problems that literally need solving because no one else is going to solve it, it changes my connection to my ability to change things. And I know that a lot of John Hattie's research about like teacher efficacy really speaks to this idea that the biggest impact on student achievement is teachers feeling like they can make a difference on student achievement. Well, it follows, I haven't done the research, but it just follows that students that feel that level of efficacy about their ability to change the world in front of them, might be able to see more results when it comes to making those changes. So that's where I think some exciting kind of alignment happens between a lot of like the 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 social change we need in our world and what CTE can provide for young people.
0: Well, and I'm curious, Colin, what does an ideal education look like for you? And with that, what changes would need to be made in the way we do schooling for that to be possible? So I used to ask
1: this question and think about it all the time, right? My education philosophy. And after having a few different thoughts, I've evolved to this answer before I changed it. My answer used to be for a long time. If we're really doing education right, then we ought to have education designed to unlock the full potential of every child. And when I do a lot of work with gifted and talented learners and kids that are all over the spectrum in terms of where they're at from a learning perspective, they're like, yeah, that's it. Like unlocking potential. Yeah, let's unlock potential. It's all about potential. And I'm like, actually, that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because who do you think you are? To assess anybody's potential. I-, I can't even assess my own potential. I can't assess the-, the potential of my own children. It can't be about potential because potential is by definition fixed. This idea of that ball on top of the hill and it's limited and it's kinetic energy based off of what potential energy has started out with. But if I think about it differently and I say, hey, you know what? What if it wasn't about potential at all? What if it was about setting the stage for excellence and moving out of the way? What would that look like? What would that look like? And I started thinking about what that meant because, you know, you can't go to an education conference where they're talking about whatever they want to call it, opportunity gap, achievement gap, whatever they want to call it. But I always say, what if we didn't care about achievement gap, opportunity gap at all? And what we wanted to do instead was shatter the achievement ceiling. What if we recognized? Rachel, this was the one that really hit me. And this is kind of like, you know, the way that having children changed my stakeholder analysis as an educator, as someone who cares about education, I realized that, take standardized tests, for instance. People a lot of times talk about one of the abolish standardized tests. It's become like this hot thing, like abolish standardized tests, all this stuff. I'm like, all right, here's the thing, though. You know, opportunities matter. And for a lot of kids, these outcomes are creating the opportunity and i am going to say that like if you believe that education has the power to interrupt intergenerational poverty you got to also believe that in your classroom there are future engineers future lawyers future whatever and a lot of times they got to pass tests to get into these careers even if you want to say college isn't for everyone which honestly if you look at the numbers still, it's still the case today that as long as you can responsibly fund college, it literally pays to go to college, even more so for first gen kids, for kids from minority populations, from, uh, for, for women, like it still literally pays to go to college. That said, you gotta take a test to be a, a plumber in a lot of jurisdictions. You gotta take a test to be a police officer. So tests still matter. And because we don't have a level playing field, oftentimes, Some of us have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And when I think about the reality of my mom and grandmother being immigrants who came here with that lesson of you gotta work twice as hard to get half as far. But think about my background is growing up on free and reduced lunch and having all these struggles a dad incarcerated for selling drugs, all these different things. I gotta work twice hard to get half as far. I decided I don't wanna teach that to my kids. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want them to be in a space where because of the work that I've been able to do, because of the work that we've been able to do, they don't need to put forward extraordinary efforts to get ordinary results because we've leveled this playing field. If we're thinking about that reality, though, of where we're at right now, we've got to think through a different definition of what success means. When I was at my law firm, there was this idea that my mom and whatever, like, oh, he made it. My friends, oh, Colin, you really made it because I got this big, high-paying law firm job. But in reality, I think about what making it means. I was the only Black attorney at the entire law firm's office there in Las Vegas at that time. And I think about the reality that I'm working like 2,400 hours a year. Um, the amount of money that I'm bringing in in terms of revenue for the firm is about a quarter or less of what I'm actually making in my compensation. And I'm realizing like making it, making it. In fact, I can go back to being in college because one of the things that was really important was because college itself was not giving me a lot of these sort of workforce preparation things. I I, I, I had a... a interviewed for this thing called Inroads. Inroads was a program and is a program that helps to get black and brown folks into corporate America, right? Four to 500 companies could be a great pathway to break these economic cycles, all good. And I never forget, never forget that in this training, the first training I went to, I had my suit, I was all excited. Basically, we were being lectured about how we needed to dress. Like, hey, you know what? Like that, like, Beard on your face, get rid of it. We don't do facial hair. All that stuff you got going on, like cornrows, forget about it, like dreadlocks, dreadful. And I started thinking to myself, like it was separated boys and girls. I'm like, I can only imagine what's happening in that other room. And I'm just thinking to myself, if you say that diversity and inclusion has value, why are you also asking me to come here and leave myself at the door? Why is my success connected to me conforming to your norm? and it got me thinking what if we didn't teach kids that the end goal was being able to play a game you gotta play the game gotta play the game gotta play the game what if the end goal was to teach them what they needed to slay the game here's how you play it here's how you get access but here's how you slay it and make it your own altogether, because The systems that we have right now were designed to create these kinds of inequitable outcomes, which means we probably don't do well telling certain kids to abide by those very same rules of that system. They've gotta think differently. They've gotta be different about it. And we see so many incredible innovations in our world that come from people who are just a little bit sideways with things, see things a little bit differently, find those different angles. Right? Like, yeah, my whole thing that I do from a curriculum standpoint, where we take these real life legal cases and tie them to critical thinking so that you can use them in school, isn't all that common. When we allow the safety, the psychological safety for kids to use who they are and how they are to create something different. I'm not just navigating a system. I'm learning what I need to be able to dismantle the parts of that system that don't work. There's a need for people that can actually do this kind of concrete work. The way we approach standard school curriculum, where even in chemistry and math and English, I should be learning how to break the things that need to be broken.
0: So, so much that you just unpacked there. Now, where do leadership development and talent development fit into this CTE framework?
1: Sure. One of the things we we really focus on um, is. Our kids can't just be problem solvers. A lot of what we get conditioned to do in school is I ask you a question, I pose you a problem, you solve it. Your job is to solve problems. They've got to be problem finders. Be problem finders. So, one thing I'm really excited about is um, with all the conversation going on around like CRT and critical race theory, all kinds of stuff, we figured, you know what? How about this? How about recognizing that no matter where people kind of fell in this, kind of continuum, Um, everyone could agree to this. We need to be in the business of RCT, raising critical thinkers, because I don't think anybody would be concerned about any of this stuff if they knew that there was no fear of any kind of indoctrination because our students didn't have the possibility of being informed about what to think because they were so skilled in how to think. And in that question about leadership development, talent development, CTE, I want to pose a question to you, a, a statement. And we RCT is something we have for parents. We actually sell that directly to families. And what's exciting about RCT is, like, there's things that families can do when they're in the car, when they're with their kids at dinner, when they're, like, waiting in line at something. It's, like, so many different activities we can have. So one of them we have is this game called informed Opinion where for younger kids, we just use little prompts. For older kids, we use headlines. But let's say this is the prompt, okay? Colin's car won't start. Colin's car won't start. What questions can we start to go back and forth on right now, Rachel? Like only questions only. Colin's car won't start. Oh, when's the last time that it did start? When's the last time that it did start? Is Colin even using the right key? Does Colin have any gas in the car? Gas prices are pretty high. Maybe he's being cheap and <laughs> trying to put five on it and it didn't really work. Like, I can have all these questions. And after a little while of doing this, right, the types of questions that start to be created go so much deeper. They become so creative. They get all the different angles considered. And what are we doing here? We're teaching nuance. We're teaching this appreciation that oftentimes There is complexity in the simple. And if we can get these habits generated as leaders, as talent scouts, to realize that the simplest of things can have a massive impact, you know, I forgot what TED talk I was watching one time. It was like this uh, hotel close to Disney. That's one of the most like highly occupied hotels and it doesn't look all that fancy, but there's like a popsicle bell. Where if kids are in the pool and they ring a bell someone comes and brings them a popsicle little stuff like this was magical right so if we start thinking about what are the opportunities to go beyond checking the box of my hospitality management program but really understanding that there's a deeper connection here there's a deeper meaning because you've taken the time to have our learners appreciate the complexity in the simple this is how we start to transform mindsets because mindsets are so stubborn because so often we don't have the skill set to accompany the mindset we're trying to get to. So what we try to do with RCT, with Raising Critical Thinkers, and a lot of our other approaches is to give you the skills needed to make that mindset shift that is so necessary.
0: You mentioned earlier that you do a lot of work in gifted education. Earlier, you mentioned your work in gifted education. With doing that work and having the big focus on finding gifted students from traditionally overlooked populations, Can you first give our audience your definition of gifted and then talk a little bit about how gifted education and CTE might complement each other?
1: Sure. That's a great question. So let me start by saying that, like, I want to just take a myth out, out of, out of the, the, the thinking here. Okay. All kids have gifts. All kids have talents but not all kids are gifted and talented in the way that is typically thought about in an academic context. Because in academic context, when we say that you're gifted and talented, we're actually diagnosing you with a special learning need. What we're saying is that where you're at academically or intellectually is creating an asynchrony between where you are at age-wise and social development-wise, okay? So you've got this thing where I might be nine years old and I might be able to do calculus but I still eat my boogers, okay? So there's this level of understanding that like gifted learners are in a space where there's this asynchrony that's present and they need this special support. But here's the other side of it that's really important to understand. A lot of the best practices from an instructional standpoint that work very well with gifted learners are extremely effective in my tier one instruction for any kind of learner in any classroom. So, what I like about using gifted education as a norm is it sets the bar where the standard is high by default. Where the standard is high by default. And where I see this coming in, the thing about CTE, and a lot of times if I think about music and band. Like, band is such a good example of this. You could be a band teacher, an award winning band teacher, and you got some kid coming to you with no rhythm whatsoever, can't even clap on time. And you can feel so confident that by the time this kid is a sophomore junior, they're gonna be able to win awards for their ability to play an instrument. You know this because you've seen it so many times and you trust this process. When I look at what happens in gifted education, the presumption of giftedness changes a lot of my ideas as your teacher. So if I am teaching a class of the top 1% of gifted learners and they don't do well on a test, I start thinking, huh, let me look at that test again and see what went on over here. Am I asking these questions fairly? There's something going off there. If there's behaviors that seem really out of whack, I'm like, okay, let me kind of think about this relationship and see what's happening here. And like, it changes this dynamic because we have a thing in our head of what it means to be a good student, what it means to be gifted. And when we start getting into this idea of really understanding gifted learners, we recognize that gifted doesn't necessarily mean high achieving. And our goal then is to figure out how do we set the stage for excellence and move out of the way? How do we get gifted learners to be able to, I'm not going to say avoid underachievement, because that's not typically the, the, the issue. Most kids generally don't underachieve. Most kids selectively achieve. If they struggle, it's because they're selectively achieving. Well, how can we make it so that they're able to feel more task commitment to these tasks. Where's the why coming from? Well, it's coming from the funk, the drama, the controversy, the conflict, all the things that we tend to reserve for our gifted instruction. But if we're doing this all across the board, it starts to change this dynamic, right? CTE students tend to be particularly interested in the, 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 the discipline that they're in. Still, there's aspects of certain things they might not like as much. We got to make sure we get that task commitment to be consistent by finding those hooks, finding those connections that are going to make it matter more.
0: And I really liked what you said about standards being high by default and also thinking about this underachieving versus selective achieving, because we know that's happening so frequently where sometimes it's just a matter of a student might be bored by the task, not completing an activity because of that boredom.
1: Yeah, I mean if you look at it, right, in terms of brain power, time and everything, the average CTE course is more time consuming, more brain consuming than your average run-of-the-mill high school course, right? But a lot of students end up being in a boat like me, where like for me, health, I'm pretty sure I got like a C minus in health. And it wasn't anything in health, but the textbook. Like if I memorized or even read any of it, I would have gotten the 100 on every single test, but I didn't care at all about that health class, at all. And there's this sort of thing of like, it wasn't a worthy task, so it wasn't worth my time. That's like the definition of a selective achiever. So yeah, so much we can do to reduce that in our upper grades and I think CTE and the, the aspects of CTE that, that really work can definitely be leveraged all across the board.
0: Well, this has been another fantastic conversation, Colin, and I'm so appreciative of you joining us again and sharing your expertise and so many new ways of looking at critical thinking. And for our members listening in, if you missed the first podcast episode with Colin, be sure to go back and check it out. It aired on July 15th, 2020, and it's titled Access to Critical Thinking and the Education Equity Equation with Colin Sill. Also be sure to expand on the details of this podcast in order to read more about his work and find links to connect with him. And we're always looking for new guests and new topics to address So email me at info at ncla-cte.org if you would like to join me on a future episode. Thank you for being a member of NCLA and for tuning in. It's because of your membership that we can provide great content like this. So be sure to hit the subscribe button. And thanks so much, Colin. I've really enjoyed this conversation today.
1: Thank you so much.